0: So, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, Commissioning Arts Editor. Coming up on today's show, I'll be heading to Soho in central London to meet the author, podcaster and storyteller extraordinaire, John Ronson. He's the man behind books including The Psychopath Test and So You've Been Publicly Shamed and the hit podcasts The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August. I'm hoping to find out from him why he's drawn to murky, secretive subcultures from sites like 4chan to the KKK and to exploring issues of shame and stigma in our society. And I also want to talk to him about his latest project, the podcast The Last Days of August, and the ethics of reporting on the death of a young porn performer. So we're recording the podcast today from a very nice roof garden right in the city of London. I can see St Paul's and the dome of the cathedral. I can see Tate Modern, the Shard, the Walkie Talkie, various church spires. This week is moving week at the FT. We've moved from the south side of the river to the north side and our new office is right next to St Paul's. Um, This does mean we don't have a studio, so we're actually sitting on a roof terrace enjoying the spring sunshine. This week, though, uh, we left our offices and went to Soho to interview John Ronson. Um, His two most recent projects are two podcasts that I really enjoyed. Both of them look at the porn industry, the butterfly effect, and the last days of August. The butterfly effect, which came out a couple of years ago, looks really at the ramifications of online streaming, online streaming of free pornography, that is, and what that really meant. For the world, it has some pretty surprising consequences for different people. And his second podcast, The Last Days of August, um, leads on from the first one and it's a deep dive into one story from that world uh, the death of a 23 year old porn performer called August Ames. John Ronson is currently touring the UK and Ireland with a show that combines these two projects. He tells the story of how he made the podcasts. And the severe impact it had on his health. So I left the shiny new offices of the FT for dark and dingy Soho um, to meet John at his hotel. A very cool, calm atmosphere compared to the hot and busy streets outside. Hello. Hi, Hello. Hi, hey. John. John, thank you so much for coming on Everything Else. Oh, thank you. Um, all of your work has a kind of certain flavour to it. It feels like um, there's common themes that are shared by the stories across the different media that you work in, but also thinking particularly about these two podcasts. Um, I wondered, do you have a sense of what a John Ronson story is and what is that? <laughs>
1: Yes, I think so. Um I mean, it's not an exact science, but mystery and curiosity. So it's got to be about a world I don't understand and want to learn about. Um, very often it's about destigmatizing stigmatized people, I suppose, treating everybody with curiosity and empathy and trying to be non-judgmental. I mean, I am, you know, like I am as judgmental as, like I'm not Gandhi, but what I'd realise is that... Actually, Gandhi was probably quite judgmental. (laughs) I need to get a better analogy than that. Um, But what I realise is that if you fill your head with judgment and ideology, then there's no space for curiosity and empathy and compassion. So I try and strip judgment and ideology out of it. So it's kind of human stories. And it's almost always, it seems, even if I don't think it's going to be about mental health, because frankly, in the end... You know, everything's about mental health. Mm,
0: that's um, interesting. So that's one of the, the things that cuts through these different stories.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, psychology, sort of why people behave the way that they do. And quite often, if, if a story is spiralling into an interesting, mysterious place, it's quite often because of mental health. So ultimately, my stories become about mental health, I would say. Mm. Uh, and I think my story is very egalitarian. I, I don't go in in a superior way. I'm non-judgmental.
0: And is that a decision that you make? I mean, stigmas exist because society, to some extent, shares them and we reinforce them. You know, whether or not we even realise we're doing that, do you do you have to sort of decide very consciously, I'm going to withhold judgement as I enter into this story?
1: Uh, not anymore, because I won't do stories these days unless they're exceptional about people who I would automatically feel judgmental about, like, say, Nazis. Um, Mm. You know, I'll only do, like, a Nazi story now if it's a very particular, interesting story. So most of the time I'm kind of looking for people who I feel that I might be able to empathise with and, you know, um, treat in that way. I'm sort of beyond the days of finger-wagging and certainly adversarial stuff. Mm. Um, I want to kind of bring light and compassion Mm. and humanism to things, particularly because I think we're living in a world where those things are kind of being seen as weaknesses these days. Well, I was going
0: to ask you, I mean, over the span of your career, it feels like positions and often particularly online are so polarised now and often empathy is the the real ingredient that's missing from discussions.
1: Yeah, I think what Twitter in particular seems to practice is, is highly selective empathy. So you're empathetic towards people in your own group but then you lack, assiduously, lack empathy for people outside of your group. And in those situations, empathy is kind of considered a, a weakness. You know, on the left, you know, you're not kind of woke enough. And, and the same thing happens on the far right.
0: Mm. So you're, you're dealing with these very topical, kind of serious issues, but often in a way that's not overly weighty that's certainly not kind of worthy where do you sort of find the fun in things
1: well I'm always I'm always looking for it and I think I've got quite good tonal judgment about even if I'm telling a really sad story but I think of something really funny or I notice a really funny thing then I I think I'm quite good at the tonally working out like when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to make those kind of shifts um but yeah I'm always looking for Funny stuff.
0: So, a John Ronson story has to have something that's kind of funny or peculiar about it.
1: Honestly, I think most of the time—not always, but most of the time—I my stories start funny and then grow increasingly bleak, mm. like life. <laughs> um, but, but then, but actually, the show that I'm doing at the moment—I'm on—I'm doing a live tour at the moment, but based on my two most recent uh, podcasts, "Last Days of August" and "The Butterfly Effect." And actually, there's a bit of a change. It's like funny, bleak funny, bleak, funny, bleak, and it's working.
0: How does a live show work in comparison to the podcast?
1: It's kind of like a a live documentary unfolding on stage. So there's lots of film clips, audio clips, photographs, lots of new writing. I've written a lot about stuff that was happening to me when I was making the shows and then things I left out of the shows. And it starts off very funny and then it gets kind of darker and darker. I was a bit worried because part of the show is about the death of a of a young girl and obviously I feel you know a great deal of weight about Mm. getting that right so I had to think a lot about is it okay to be funny at this moment
0: yeah yeah I I wanted to ask you about this about this kind of decision making when you're dealing with subjects like this you're handling such sensitive subject matter and and, you know a death that happened fairly recently and where feelings involved are still kind of raw and and communities really split by it um there was a line in The Last Days of August that really struck me where you say, anxiety is the disease of moral goodness.
1: Mm. I believe that's so.
0: And do you feel anxious when making decisions, kind of ethical decisions around this kind of journalism, around this kind of storytelling?
1: Yes, and especially with The Last Days of August, because it was the, I'd say probably in, in those terms, the toughest one I've ever mm. had to do, because we found ourselves in the position of trying to figure out why this you know, lovely 23-year-old died but I wanted to do that without obviously making the lives of her grieving loved ones any harder and at times those two things were in conflict.
0: One of the world's most famous porn stars is now dead only days after a controversy erupted over her alleged anti-gay remarks. The full fury of Twitter came down on Ames and she was bullied relentlessly online for her
1: supposed homophobia. On December the 5th, 2017, the porn star August Ames, real name Mercedes Grabowski, committed suicide. It happened a day after she'd been piled in on, on Twitter by fellow porn professionals. I had written about Twitter pylons and we'd spent so much time in the porn world, it seemed right to approach August's husband, Kevin, for an interview. Kevin works in porn, too, as a producer. A few weeks after we contacted him, he emailed back. This was a month after August died. He said he wanted to tell someone the story of how social media bullying had killed his wife and decided that it should be me. If I'd got that wrong, I mean, oh, my God, you know, that would have haunted me till my deathbed. Mm. Um, but thank goodness I listened to my anxiety and my conscience, yeah. which was, you know, yelling at me all year. So.
0: And was it always yelling the same thing, or did you ever flip-flop between thinking, actually, no, we can say that, or oh, no, no, we shouldn't say that?
1: The one thing that was yelling all year was, you've got to be fair to Kevin, Kevin being the husband of the of August. Um, mm. I have to be fair to Kevin, I have to be fair to Kevin. You know, that that was my primary concern.
0: Yeah and so you say that you're um, trying to work out how this young woman died but you say pretty early on in the series I think it's the second episode you know this is not a murder mystery. Mm. Um, Why did you feel the need to say that?
1: It was really on my mind like I did not want to use suspicions that Kevin might be a murderer as a narrative device to keep people listening Uh, which I know a lot of people do but um, maybe it's because I'm a bit older now. If I was making the show when I was 30, I probably would have just done it. But I felt I just felt like I had to. I mm. mean it was screaming at me like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and think about it.
0: At the same time though, the kind of the strangeness of her death and the fact fe- that it is sort of unexplained or, or that, that we can't quite know, um that does drive the narrative to True. some extent or at least drives the narrative interest of yeah. the listener.
1: And that's what we went through all year. So it felt fair mm. to make the listener be in the maze that that we were in all year, trying to figure out why she died. So, but that you know leads to the point that you know you still want to do page turners. You know you don't, yeah. you don't want to make something so ethical that it's actually boring and nobody wants to read it or listen to it. So I worry about that a lot when I'm you know editing.
0: And just to to zoom out a bit from from this particular story, your last two podcast series have been centered on the porn industry. I wondered how you first started looking into it and and why.
1: I was writing a book about public shaming and I was in Los Angeles meeting a porn star for that purpose. Her name was Princess Donna. The, the receptionist said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. So I went downstairs and everyone in the lobby was dressed, you know, exactly as I'm dressed now in shapeless grey. <laughs> <laughs> um, except for Princess Donna who was wearing this very tight, very bright dress, high heels, and looked like a porn star, which, by the way, I should say, like now, years later, having been with a huge number of porn stars, that's quite unusual that that she was just... But maybe she was coming from a shoot or something, I don't know. Anyway, I was walking towards her, and I looked over at the receptionist, and he was looking at her, and the look on his face, I felt, was one of total contempt. And I thought in a flash, whoa, I bet you're OK with porn stars when they're on your laptop, but not when they're in your lobby. And that look stayed with me. So after I finished So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more fun because that book was not fun. <laughs> and, uh, and I remembered that look. It's always kind of stayed with me. And I thought, yeah, maybe I should see what's happening in the world of porn. What my story became quite quickly... Uh, in the podcast The Butterfly Effect, is a look at how tech bros conquered the porn community. So these outsiders, these kind of tech geniuses, came in and just decimated the community by setting up sites that were basically YouTube for porn.
0: Mm. So making it free, essentially.
1: Yeah. So, you know, overnight there was a vast flow of money from the whole San Fernando Valley into the pockets of two or three people. Um, So that's how The Butterfly Effect began. It was a look at tech versus porn and maybe maybe Mm. it was a story about who we should consider reputable and who we should consider disreputable maybe that maybe we should change our
0: Mm. definitions of that Mm. did you have preconceptions about the porn industry
1: yes i thought maybe it would be sketchy and full of criminals but then when I first started spending time on porn sets myself, I realised, you know, it's not like being in the mob, it's like being in an off-Broadway show, <laughs> you know, just with these kind of sweet, creative young young mm. people. And sure, there will be exploitative, unpleasant corners of the valley, just as there are exploitative, unpleasant corners of the mainstream Hollywood industry, um, which I've seen myself. But to at least some extent... It's also a really lovely place where outsiders support each other and people care for each other. And, you know, so I was really pleasantly surprised about mm. that. And that's what the story quickly became about.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of striking and noticeable that you as, as the narrator of the podcast or both podcasts are kind of non-judgmental about about the people who work in porn and, and who kind of make their living that way. And I wondered, are we as a society kind of too judgmental of, of these people? And
1: Oh, totally. Um, well, look, August Ames, who the second podcast is about, died. Um, the last time I looked, it was barely reported by anybody. Yet, the last time I checked to see what her viewer count on Pornhub was, one site... And August's videos have been viewed, last time I looked, 585 million times. And yet her death went almost entirely unreported. So, yeah, huge. So there's he, a massive
0: hypocrisy at the heart of this. Massive hypocrisy, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, which, of course, made me want to do the story all the more.
0: Mm. Are there risks inherent in, in withholding judgment in entering into these kind of places? Or
1: Yes. Um... There were things that I left out of The Butterfly Effect that I... Well, I didn't regret it at the time, but now looking back on it, I I regret... Sort of, well, I'm going to caveat that. One thing was... I didn't completely leave it out. The suitcase pimps. And the suitcase pimps is a term in porn for the boyfriend, almost always older... Quite often English. i had a conversation with Louis Theroux about this quite recently because Louis's done some porn stories too. And he mm. said, isn't it true that like when you go to subcultures, quite often when you dig really deep into subculture, you'll find a villainous Englishman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of Disney stereotype holds yeah, true. <laughs>
1: it's really true. So you've got like a lot of these like older, you know, the girls are 18, 19, 20, you know, the boyfriends are... 40, 42, 43, quite often they're English mm. for some reason. Quite often they're Tottenham fans, I noticed. Right. And, um, <laughs> I, 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 I won't comment. Eh? I, no, no, it just, it, just, it just happens to be true. <laughs> don't know why. But um, we call them suitcase pimps because all they seem to do is hold the girl's suitcase while she shoots the scene. Um, but, you know, like if you want to get into porn, get into porn, but don't get into porn because your boyfriend you know, is kind of coercing you into doing it. So I so I put that into The Butterfly Effect, but I didn't go any further with it. But then The Last Days of August um, is kind of all about that. So, yeah, so I've learned my lesson from that. Because I, I very much don't want to be an ideological journalist. I very much don't want to go in with a preconceived agenda. But on that one occasion, I was loving so much telling this happy porn story that when I saw unhappy things... Um, I didn't treat them with the respect that they deserved.
0: Is there a reason why you wanted to tell these two stories about um, the porn industry in audio
1: form? Well, I would never want to do a TV thing about porn because, you know, what everybody will do, they'll just fast... You know, they'll fast-forward to the nuance to get to the sex, and I'm much more interested in the nuance <laughs> than the sex. So I could never... do. You know, naked people on television is such a powerful thing that, you you know, your mind can't concentrate on Mm. the human stories and the nuance.
0: I think there's also something very powerful about just hearing what these very young, very beautiful women have to say and only being able to hear it. Mm. Like, I didn't Google any of these women to see what they even looked like before I'd listened to everything. And actually, I liked not knowing. I couldn't picture August.
1: Right. I completely agree with you. And I thought that myself. I mean, some of the people I interviewed Mm. were just, you know, stunningly beautiful. And I, I liked the fact that you couldn't see that.
0: So in both The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August in both series, there seem to be moments where you're you're interviewing somebody and captured on tape, we hear what seems to be the first time that that person has really reflected on or thought about um, the negative impact of their behaviour on on someone else. Mm. It's almost like a lack of self-reflection. I wonder, is that something that that you like in an interviewee?
1: No, because I mean, cause that sounds calculated and I, and I tend to not be at all calculated when I do these stories. I, I tend to just sort of be entirely curious and winging it because, again, for the same reason that if there's too much judgment in your head, there's no room for curiosity. Mm-hmm. If there's too much planning in your head, there's no room for, you know, being a, a twig in, in, the, in the river. But I think the reason my people open up in that way with me is probably to do with that too. It's because I'm... I'm like, you know, we're a bunch of humans just trying to figure it out. You know, so let's, let's do this together. And I'm not out to stitch you up. I'm not out to, you know, get you. I don't consider myself superior to you. Uh, so let's just, you know, we're just all trying to get through life. Let's just try and figure it out.
0: Are you figuring out? As well? Oh,
1: God, yeah. Especially with the last days of August. I, I you know, learned so much making that show about um, ethics, about gender You know, a whole bunch of things that I've thought a bit about. Gender is actually something I've never really thought too much about. Um, And I learned an awful lot about that making this show.
0: What specifically?
1: Well, in the last days of August, you learn an awful lot about gender, I think. About the fact that men and women see things differently. And sometimes that really clashes and can Mm. create, you know, turmoil and carnage.
0: Um, I'm interested to ask you about the idea of character and about interviewees. You've said that often kind of curiosity and the idea of stigma sort of drives your interest in terms of finding stories. Are there sort of certain character traits or types of people that you're particularly interested in as well?
1: There are certain types of people who are frustratingly hard to chronicle well. Tech people um, are so powerful. Tech and finance, they're so powerful and so important, but they're so hard to write about because they're so Boring.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask why
1: but is that the reason? <laughs> yes, I, I tried to write a book about credit cards. Um, this was before the crash. This was like in about two thousand and five. But the, the brick wall I kept hitting was how boring they were. You know, it's just data. It's just numbers. But you know what? I think I've gotten better at. I was. I always used to really admire. Um, well, I still do. Uh, Nick Hornby, because I used to see Nick Hornby as being. Like the opposite of me. I, at the time, I'd get annoyed at myself because I'd think, you know, I have to go to some Ku Klux Klan meeting to get my material. All Nick Hornby has to do is like go to the basement of a Starbucks. And I really admired that. Like I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do, how to make normal life as interesting and exciting. But I think over the years, I've got much better at that. And my most recent stuff, um, particularly so you've been publicly shamed, is very much about normal life.
0: I mean, it's regular people, but it's still regular people that something extraordinary has happened to them, in that most people haven't had that kind of online outrage poured on them.
1: That's absolutely true. Um, yes, I, th- I think I probably still need something extraordinary. Mm. I still haven't reached that kind of Nick Hornby place of making something tiny, you know, so... so I, I really... I, you know, I've always really admired it because it just feels ever so slightly out of reach.
0: Mm. It seems like lots of the people that you look at in your work are damaged in some way, yes, you know psychopaths, internet trolls, porn performers um, they're people who kind of seem outside and yet they let you in mm. as as the interviewer i mean do you, do you recognize that characterization? Do you think uh,
1: that's yeah, right I think so, but you know quite recently they opened up a homeless shelter about a couple of the buildings away from where I live in New York. And there was a, you know, big public meeting about it. So I went along and everyone was like all worried. And somebody said, like, will there be mentally ill people there? And the woman said, uh, said, there's mentally ill people in your building. (laughs) And uh, that's my main answer to that is, you know, everyone's damaged. Mm. Um, So when I write about damaged people, almost everyone... I I don't think I have a single friend who doesn't have mental health issues. And... um, You know, I have mental health issues. And so I think that's probably part of the reason why I do go to damaged people, because, Mm. you know, I am too. And and mental health, I've come to realise, is the most important subject in the Mm. world. It's the answer to all the great mysteries. Like, why did that happen? Because of mental health.
0: And you're not on the outside of mental health, as you say. You yourself
1: have mental health issues. It took me a long time to figure out like how many mental health issues I did have. Because I grew up thinking anxiety was just, you know, an ordinary way of being. But Mm. I had a little... Making the last days of August gave me a little bit of a breakdown. I had a bit of a breakdown in January, which I talk about on stage. Mm. So I sort of went started going to therapy. And it did start making me think, God, you know, I should have done this years ago. Because actually, you know, that time I was in a hotel room and I couldn't get my wife on the phone. And so I phoned and phoned and phoned. And the next morning the hotel phone bill was $900 (laughs) you know that's not normal (laughs) like that's not okay and I should have um, been managing this a a long time ago
0: so this is the first time that you've ever had any kind of therapy
1: yeah so I've had anxiety my whole life but in January or mainly to to do with you know making the last days of August and um, I mean not entirely but mainly and worrying about the ethics of it there was other reasons too but that was a big one um, it all just sort of collided in on me and I mm. sort of had a, you know, a sort of two or three week, you know, collapse. Um, so, yes, it was the first time I ever have sought therapy.
0: Has there been something relieving about talking about this on stage?
1: A little bit of me feels like I'm a bit in denial about the fact that I'm going on stage every night and talking about it. I feel like there's maybe two me's and the actual me is is at home in New York stroking the dogs and watching Game of Thrones and then this sort of (laughs) parallel universe me that doesn't really exist is on stage at the London Palladium talking about his breakdown. But funnily enough, I, I loved it. I am much more anxious being invited to a small dinner party than going on stage at the London Palladium, like significantly more anxious. But I think lots of anxious people share this or lots of introverts share it, that, you know, going on stage is a lot easier than going to a party.
0: Is it something about being in performance mode, whereas when you're in a party, you sort of... you yourself. you yourself, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's got something to do with it. Also, eye contact's probably got something to do with it, I'd say.
0: And thinking about the kind of performing self and the self sitting at home stroking the dog and watching TV, when you were in my chair and you were doing the interview, are you a different character?
1: Is it a performance? No. Um, it was a real relief for me to give up doing television for that reason. I'd watch Louis Theroux and I'd think he's so much better at performing the character of the interviewer than I am. And so I'd watch Louis and I'd, I'd get sort of, you know, a bit upset thinking, you know, Louis's got that down to a T and I'm not, you know, I'm not as good at that aspect of it as he is so once I gave up doing TV and now it's basically all either writing or audio, it's a huge weight off my mind. Um, so I'm not at all performative when I'm interviewing people.
0: Do you feel like at this stage of your career, interviewees sort of know who you are at this moment when you go into their lives?
1: Uh, definitely more than before. And sometimes it works to my advantage and sometimes not. Like, sometimes people won't talk to me because they think I'm too well-known and it's kind of intimidating and a big deal. And Mm. I'm the same. Like, I won't do TV shows that are too high-profile. Like, I I turned down question time Mm. last week, you know, for that reason. Um, But then on other occasions, no, it it really does help. I mean, the porn community, definitely, a very close community. But what does really help a lot is... So you've been publicly shamed mm. uh, because sh- people who have been shamed, like interesting people who have been shamed, automatically trust me and, you know, and actually come to me. Mm. I- I've made some really good sh- shamed friends <laughs> as a result of writing that book to being uh, Monica Lewinsky and Amanda Knox. I've become sort of very close friends with Amanda Knox. Mm. Um, and it's also because... You know what's the cure for shame? Uh, empathy.
0: So, um, when you when you meet people that have been shamed, and you say that you you're not necessarily interviewing them to be used for anything, you're just kind of meeting with them. Do you kind of remain in their lives indefinitely? What, what's your relationship with people after you interview them, after you meet them, as an ongoing?
1: Uh, well, some say so some become friends. I mean, I like it a lot when it happens because, you know, all journalists are worried that they're like muggers, you know, like hit and run.
0: The alternative feels strange in a way to sort of embed so deeply and then to just be gone.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that just this morning about aftercare. Um, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge issue in journalism, right? Like, like um, knowing that when we enter a room, everything changes and we have a giant responsibility. And certainly as I get older, I, I worry more and more. Mm.
0: How do you approach new projects? Do they grow out of things that you've worked on? Or do you ever think, you know, now for something completely different?
1: You know, quite often there is a little moment. I've noticed this: a little moment in a previous book that is the springboard for the, for the next one. So yes, yeah, sometimes I think of all of my stuff as being like a you know, like a relay race, like one book then passes the baton onto the next one, but it's not conscious I've just mm. sort of noticed that
0: so what are you interested in right now? what's the thing?
1: Um, some of the themes from the last days of August I'm thinking might might be interesting there's you know about control, emotional distance, narcissism, the psychology of men in, who were caught up in sex scandals. You know, those are all there in the last days of August, but I think all of them may, you know, there, somewhere within all of them, there may be my next project, but I'm I'm still not entirely sure what. The other thing I'm thinking about a lot is isolation. You know, a, lo- a lot of the reason why August died was because of isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the reason why I got sick was because of isolation. So I'm thinking a lot about isolation as well. Um, there's been some very good books that were written about being alone so I was actually wondering whether or not you know I'm on this big long tour I might download one or two of the audiobooks and if there's something I think I can bring to this that nobody else has brought to it then maybe I'll explore that
0: Reading about loneliness on your own on tour is maybe
1: (laughs) (laughs) a high risk On the other hand, if I was travelling with someone that can be annoying too When I do American tours... Um, you, you fly to, you know, uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. There's always somebody to pick you up at the airport. It's like I can't remember they're called, them, but like, you know, the publishers will send somebody who will look after you that day and take you to interviews. And, you know, as an introvert, you know, it's it's you know, and they always want to talk a lot. They're excited to have like an author there. They always mm. want to like talk a lot, ask you a lot of questions, and uh, it can be so exhausting. With one exception, I was in Nashville. And I got off the plane, and there was this guy there who immediately looked much more lugubrious than the others and a lot less excited that there was an author there. And so I became, lot like, more interested. And I sort of said to him, ''Oh, so do you do this much?'' And he went, ''No, no, my, um, my wife is actually the person who does this, but, you know, she's unavailable today, so I thought I would do it.'' So I said, ''Oh, so what do you do normally?'' And he said, uh, for the last 40 years, I've been Kenny Rogers' keyboard player. Wow. And I was like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> the, whole, the whole day, I was just asking you like, millions of questions about Kenny Rogers. <laughs> so that was great.
0: Well, John, thank you so much for covering on everything else.
1: Oh, thank you, Griselda, and thank you very much for uh, having me.
0: So in that interview... I think what struck me most is how open and honest John Ronson was about his own mental health and specifically about the toll that making The Last Days of August took on it. I, do, I, think, it's, I think it's quite rare, actually, for someone who's you know, essentially promoting something to talk, to talk honestly and candidly about the experience of doing that and about the difficulties, um, the kind of ethical negotiations of working on a, on a project like that. Um, I hadn't really realised that the connecting thread between his various projects, um, you know, spanning from books to podcasts, is mental health. And I think the fact that this is something he cares about deeply and has struggled with in his own life and most people have struggled with in their lives... um, I'd be interested to see what he does next and whether he does do something about isolation and loneliness. It's such a kind of pervasive theme of our time. And um, not to be flippant about it, but doing the podcast on my own is definitely... Well, it's a more lonely experience than doing it with a co-host. So I'm really excited to announce that I do have a new co-host now and I'm much looking forward to them making their first appearance on the next episode. That's it for this week. I'll be back in two weeks' time to talk to the writer and the creator of Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker. Thanks so much to everyone who's got in touch over the past few weeks. It really means a lot to me, and I love hearing from you. I also do answer every message that I get, so please do get in touch. You can email the show at ft.com or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And we're going to find ways over the next few weeks and months to incorporate more of what our listeners think on the show. So please send us a message. And if you like what you hear, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. Everything Else is produced by David Waters and presented by me, Griselda Murray-Brown. And our music is by
1: Fatum.